let's be honest about it, there have been some very high-profile examples in public life in recent times of people who haven't lived to the sort of the values and standards that the public expect, who haven't um, uh, made good of the Nolan principles, and I think, frankly, have set a very poor example for others to follow. So let's make sure that we encourage people with real ability, with a real commitment to duty and to public service to step forward, and that includes people who've served in the armed forces, but it also includes people from every other walk of life who care about their communities, who want to roll their sleeves up, who want to do something worthwhile. And I think if we can harness that in the, that in the right way, then our country will be all the better for it. My name is Johnny Ball, and I'm the founder of Campaign Force, a not-for-profit that inspires, trains and coaches the armed forces community to stand up and serve again. I've served on the front line of military operations and in civilian life, the front line of UK politics. This Veterans in Politics podcast is a set of interviews brought to you by Campaign Force and sets out to explore how the military community can help make our politics a better place. I lean into my little black book of contacts and sit down with individuals from across the world of politics, sharing secrets, giving tips and advice, and inspiring the next generation. We our campaign force. This is the Veterans in Politics podcast. Let's introduce you to our guest. This podcast has been sponsored by Salesforce, the world's number one CRM, enabling companies of every size and industry to digitally transform and connect with their customers in a whole new way through a single view of customer data and real-time insights that create personalized experiences and drive cost savings. Salesforce is proud to be a gold member of the Employee Recognition Scheme of the Armed Forces Covenant and is dedicated to its support to the military community. Internally, they run an initiative called VetForce, which is an internal employee alliance, and it actively champions an inclusive environment for veterans and military families through education, philanthropy, and currently has close to 5,000 members globally. There's also an external program called Salesforce Military, which provides free enablement and recognised qualifications in the Salesforce ecosystem that can lead to employment in the industry post-service. This offer is open to serving personnel and their partners, as well as veterans. Okay, welcome to this Labour Party conference fringe event for Campaign Force in association with Labour Friends of the Forces and Salesforce. I'm really pleased to be back at Labour for the third year in a row and to see so many familiar faces in the room who support our mission to get veterans and reservists and all members of the armed forces community to stand up and serve again. And before we crack on into things and start um, interviewing our panel, just as a brief introduction, I'm sure some of these esteemed guests that join us today for this event need no introduction, but I will do it anyway. Um, My name's Johnny Ball. I'm going to be your host. I'm the founder of Campaign Force. Um, And for the next half hour or so, we're going to be um, really championing the value of members of the armed forces community to stand up and serve again. Um, Our first guest is Dan Jarvis, MBE MP, a veteran of the Parachute Regiment, an MP for Barnsley Central, and also a previous mayor of the South Sheffield region. We also have Chris Sykes, who not only works for Salesforce in digital transformation, but is the commanding officer of the London Guards. Um, So we're really pleased to have a representative from the reserve community as well on today's panel serving and has served for a number of, I think, 24 years in total. So it's fantastic to be joined by Chris. 
We also have Toby Dickinson, who's co-chair of Labour Friends of the Forces, and without his support and Chris's support today, today's event simply wouldn't happen, who's a defence consultant and a veteran of the Royal Air Force. We also have on the end of the table there, on the opposite end, is Gareth Derrick, who is the um, parliamentary candidate, prospective parliamentary candidate for Plymouth Moorview. Um, he's also been a Plymouth City Councillor and a senior Royal Navy veteran as well, as well as standing in a number of elections, including that of Police and Crime Commissioner as well. So very experienced at fighting elections. And lastly, Louise Harbour, um, friend of the show, previously had an interview, haven't we, Louise? Um, a RAF veteran, works within the engineering branch and has huge amount of experience working in the third sector and until recently was the deputy leader of Knowsley Council, which is just down the road. So this is very much your home patch, isn't it, Louise? So without further ado, we're going to crack on straight with our first question for today's episode. Now, given as a nation what we've all just experienced with the sad loss of Her Majesty the Queen, I think what it has done and shown us is that value of genuine service. So panel, Having experienced that, do you think that we've ex- we've had a renewed appreciation through the example of Majesty of the Queen for public service? And what does service mean to you? So, Dan, if I can just kick off with a response. Yeah, well, th- thank you, Johnny. And, and thanks for the, the great work that you do, uh, encouraging people who've served in the armed forces to step forward into politics. I think it's a really important mission that you're engaged with. I think let me just... Just say a word uh, about Her Late Majesty the Queen. I think, let's be honest about it, not everybody is a supporter of the institution of the monarchy. But I think the overwhelming majority of the British public held the Queen, the late Queen, in the highest of regard. She was somebody who committed her whole life to the country. She was someone who personifies duty and service And I think um, her very sad passing is a moment to reflect on the importance of the service that she gave, but also to think about how we can encourage others to step forward and serve. Before we started the recording, uh, you made a remark, which I think everybody agreed with, which was you were fed up of crap politicians. And I think we're all fed up of crap politicians. Uh, And one of the things I think that, that makes somebody who goes into politics not crap is a proven track record uh, of professional delivery, of getting up and going out to do something that's worthwhile, that's making a difference to others. And I think uh, the Queen was a, a great example for the nation in terms of the commitment and the devotion that she gave to her duties. I also think it's just worth briefly reflecting on the extraordinary commitment of those who were involved in the funeral. I mean, like everybody else, I'm sure, I watched it on the TV And I saw those young soldiers, I think from the Grenadier Guards, as the Queen's pallbearers. I mean, can you just imagine the weight of pressure on them, the eyes of the world literally upon them? And despite all of that, they did an outstanding job alongside everyone else from the armed forces who was involved in that funeral and actually conducted themselves in a way with which I think that collectively we could and should be very proud. Your question was about... What does service mean to me personally? I I believe in the value of public service. Public service took me into the army when it wasn't necessarily the most fashionable thing to do. It kept me there during some pretty tough times through all the worst of Afghanistan and Iraq, through the Balkans and, and Northern Ireland. And it was that same sense of public service that took me from the army into politics. Because although we're all fed up of crap politicians, 
and because politicians and politics is not necessarily held in the highest regard, it is still a noble pursuit. And we need people to step forward and actually make a commitment to public service. So I, I think, and not least because although we're focusing the question on the Queen, let's be honest about it, there have been some very high profile examples in public life in recent times of people who haven't lived to the sort of the values and standards that the public expect, who haven't um, uh, made good of the Nolan principles, and I think, frankly, have set a very poor example for others to follow. So let's make sure that we encourage people with real ability, with a real commitment to duty and to public service to step forward, and that includes people who've served in the armed forces, but it also includes people from every other walk of life who care about their communities, who want to roll their sleeves up, who want to do something worthwhile. And I think if we can harness that in the, that in the right way, then our country will be all the better for it. I couldn't agree with you any more than that. Obviously, as an evangelist of public service um, and the weight of those values and standards and how you conduct yourself is a heavy one, which I'm sure you bear every day as a public servant. Uh, and you spoke about those young guardsmen as well and the literal physical heavy weight of the service they did carrying that coffin. Um, now, I'm actually pleased to say that um, I'm very proudly say that Chris, uh, one of our panellists here from Salesforce, as a reservist, um, and as the commanding officer has been involved um, in that public duty. So thank you for everything you did publicly, Chris, and your soldiers during the execution of that duty. Um, so, Chris, <laughs> it probably makes sense to then say, what does public service mean to you? <laughs> um, considering what you've just done on behalf of us all with Her Majesty the Queen, but and in terms of 24 years of service, what does it mean to you? Um yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I, I, I've just written something down when, when you mentioned about the funeral and um, the uh, Major General Household Division uh, said something to us at the, uh, the beginning of uh, the presentation of Benny was describing how the next 10 days were going to work out over leading up to the, um, the state funeral. And he said, it's our first, it's our last duty to Her Majesty the Queen and it's our first duty to His Majesty the King to make sure that this goes off without a hitch. Um, the final words before we went out on the procession were very simple. Gentlemen, uh, the minimum standard today is perfection. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, no, no, room pressure. To get, no pressure, no room to get it wrong on that one. Um, I've, I have spent uh, the last 20, 24 years uh, in the Army Reserve, um, and I've had the fortune to serve um, in, in Bosnia and Iraq. Um, and uh, after that, I decided it was probably a good idea to take a bit of time out and concentrate on my civilian career. Uh, but I realised very quickly that I was missing something, and that something was that element around service. Um, for me, um, it's about taking a pride in seeing other people do well. Uh, that's what I find that hits me when I talk about service. It's not about how am I doing, it's about how are my soldiers doing, how are the people around me doing, how are my friends uh, doing. That's the thing around service that I, I believe really hits home. And I think that directly transfers into... When you think about your residence as a, an MP or a local councillor, thinking about others before yourself. And Louise, you've got extensive experience uh, working in local government and putting others before yourself in your civilian career, as well as what you do within um, local government. I mean, how has your experience been of that transfer of service from your RAF service into public service in local government? I think for me, I think my forces career really set me up. Sorry, really set me up well for um, for, for for going into politics. You know, being being able to 
work with lots of different demographics. We were talking earlier on and we were saying how, you know, you, you move to a camp and you're either moving around or other people are moving around. You go from maybe a small town like me from the northwest, as you can tell from the accent. Uh, you meet people of all different kinds and it's sink or swim. You have to get stuck in. You have to get to know people and you get a real interest for people and their stories. So when you become a counsellor and then you're out there working with the public, you're able to deal with people on all levels um, and take them in as your own. I think as well, you know, the camaraderie that you have within the forces, it gives you a real sense of community. And to be a good politician, you have to be rooted in your community and have a good sense of that community and the community identity. Um, and, and being in the forces, it gives you that. You have that loyalty amongst each other that you can carry forward um, into your community and get, get, get that across to people in, in the way that you carry yourself. I mean, specific to um, the Queen and, and the processions that we saw on Monday, I mean, it was absolutely, it was nothing short of perfection. And, you know, a lot of young men and women there, and it'll kill me to say this as a member of the Royal Air Force, but those naval ratings, some of them had only been (laughs) signed up for three months. I mean, what a a weight to bear. Uh, And they just conducted themselves with such dignity. Um, It was really, really impressive. Oh, they did a phenomenal job. And we all saw that on our public um, screens, didn't we? I think the ratings, uh, the how many people watched that was just astronomical. And for the world to gaze on those young ratings um, themselves in the Royal Navy was unbelievable. But we go back to the RAF um, with Toby. And um, do you think um, your appreciation from the period we've just lived under of public service and from your own service as well, has that perhaps changed? What does public service mean to you as a result of recent experiences? Uh, I think it's a reminder, it's a reinforcement of those values. And that happens periodically, you know, Remembrance, uh, Armed Forces Day. These are events where, as a nation, we're, we're reminded of these of these values, of these duties. Um, and clearly, the events of the past fortnight have, have only reinforced those in people's minds. So, yes, with the passing of the Majesty, there's been a bit of a, a drawing down of blinds, but there's continuity as well. You know, we saw that very much, as you said yourself, Chris, about the first and last duty. And that's under continuity that some of these values, all these values, are enduring. Uh, and they will matter to all of us forever. And you've had a bit of continuity with your work with Labour Friends of the Forces as well, that genuine public service of espousing that to your members, encouraging those from the armed forces community to get involved in Labour Friends of the Forces. So while you're here at conference, do check out their last year award-winning stand. No pressure, team, no pressure. Um, But Gareth, I I already mentioned, you you had a a lengthy career in the Royal Navy and... um, clearly a public servant and you've done that time and time again fighting elections at various levels and um, was the recent events has that um, impacted upon you well it certainly impacted on me personally I, mean, I found it very very moving but i think i want to start off by just saying that the loss of the, the queen was obviously a tragedy but a, tr- a fantastic triumph of her own dedication and service you know uh, very impressive and i think uh, for me uh, personally very affected by having served at you know, in the Royal Navy for so many years. But I believe that the events have been really certainly restorative and maybe even deliberately so. Maybe that's why they were crafted in that way. But I'm hoping they may even be a bit more transformative in the way that uh, pub- public service is seen uh, more widely. I think the Queen exemplified service through her commitment, her dedication. And I'm going to use energy, but I'm also going to say and her steadiness. Because I'm trying to draw out a couple of thoughts about what makes good service. And I think um, steadiness is an important part of it. Um, the Queen was vibrant, she was inspiring, charismatic, yet she also embodied steadiness. And I asked the question, is that just because this is sort of the constitutional arrangement that we have with the Queen, or is it actually because, you know, it really is, in some in some cases, the right way to go about the business? Um, and I bring in a sort of military example. Um, 
there's always an element of important steadiness about military operations. You know, that steadiness there. Whether that is in a nuclear deterrent patrol in a submarine or on the front line, on the ground, under fire, there's an important aspect of steadiness. So I'm going to give you an example. It's, it's a personal one to me. Um, in Iraq, um, there was a situation where I wasn't there, by the way, but I was in a headquarters where in the digitally connected world, we could see what was going on the ground. And uh, there was uh, a soldier calling back uh, in a very, very troubled state with his own, you know, with his other soldiers around him on a rooftop being attacked by militia. And he really was in fear of his life, etc., etc. And he was screaming for help and screaming for everything. And the order came back. And this is the, the digital connected world from a four star general straight down to that soldier on the front. And the, the words were, soldier, face your front, engage the enemy. That's it. And he did. And the situation was settled. So steadiness is, is very important. The second thing I'd like to say is um, the, the, the service is often about the balance between, and I used these words earlier, tragedy and triumph. Um, you know, operating in a zone, not attempting to get to that point of triumph necessarily, because that's something you're not doing it for. You're just doing it for the duty of what is, what is there before you. But you are at the risk of falling into tragedy as well. And I think that's, an, I see that as, you know, that's what service is. And so the great example I'd like to give, not to use a military example, is the NHS during COVID, who actually did what they did admirably, taking huge personal risks, uh, no, no personal triumph out of it at all, to stop the falling of our country and their families into tragedy. And I think that's a great example. And so I, I would like to think that leadership and politics could be conducted a, a bit more like that. Unfortunately, I don't think it's going to come about too soon, but we should keep trying for it. Uh, I'm glad you brought that example of the NHS as well, because, you know, I yes, I champion the armed forces community as that second service, stand up and serve again. But there are other public spirited people in this country, including the NHS, that would make amazing politicians as well, because it's in their DNA of service. So I think we've really done well on covering service in that opening gambit. Um, but Dan, um, we've seen how the defence has definitely come back on the radar probably in the post-ukraine environment people are starting to talk about defense a lot more but how has you have you seen the positioning of defense within the labor party perhaps around parliament specifically how have you seen that evolve in recent times if any well i think what i have seen is an increasing realization of the importance of the armed forces community the armed forces community stretches into every single corner of our country and I know in my constituency in Barnsley in, in South Yorkshire, there is a real reverence for those who step forward and serve. There is a huge pride in the fact that we still have young men and women who are prepared to step forward and do what is a very difficult, challenging job. It's not a job, it's a way of life, but, but you know what I mean. And I think that um, certainly from our shadow defence secretaries and from, from members of parliament, there has been an, an awareness of that um, over a number of years, but I think it's sort of intensified recently. And of course, events in Ukraine have focused everybody's minds on the fact that we have got a conflict taking place and we have you know, a role to play within that. I think it's also just worth reflecting on the fact that there are, in a sense, some so-called established conventions in politics, some kind of sort of truths that perhaps aren't necessarily true. I mean, to give you one example, you know, traditionally, the Conservatives have liked to see themselves 
as the party of business. Now, I've had some quite interesting conversations with people from the business community in recent times and here at this conference who would, miss, who would certainly sort of challenge that uh, assertion. But I think the one that is most specifically relevant today is this notion that the Conservative Party, Conservative governments are good for defence and that they are better at doing the politics of defence, better for our armed forces than the Labour Party. I think that is absolutely not the case. And I would challenge anybody outside of this room to try and sort of stack that up. But that has become a kind of sort of discourse within the media and in terms of the conversation about defence um, at a sort of national level. I think if you look at the reality, I think that the Labour Party's got a very strong record when it comes to defence. We've had some fantastic defence secretaries over the years, back from Dennis Healy, um, a predecessor of mine uh, in Barnsley, Roy Mason, uh, George Robertson and a number of other big figures who've made a very significant contribution to our armed forces as Secretary of State. And in Parliament in recent times, we've had some excellent Shadow Defence Secretaries, Jim Murphy, Vernon Coker, Neil Griffiths was excellent at what was a more challenging time for, for our party, put it in that way. And latterly, I have to say that I think John Healy has done an outstanding job as Shadow Secretary of State for Defence. He's speaking at the conference tomorrow, and I think he, he, he really gets and understands the importance of it and is developing a plan um, for the armed forces. Because the reality is our armed forces, I don't think, are big enough to meet the scale of the challenge that we face. There is a, a, a lack of a fleet of foot in terms of responding to some of the huge threats that we've faced. Um, for months in Parliament, myself and others were saying to the government, look, you know, the world has changed. You did an integrated review, but things have happened. You've got to have that kind of sort of flexibility and that mindset to, to look at what's happened uh, and to adjust accordingly. And I think the government have been very slow to do that. Liz Truss, as part of the um, leadership campaign, finally said that she was going to look at the integrated review. Um, we'll see whether we do that, whether she does that. We'll see whether the appropriate level of resources attached to investing in our armed forces. Because I know, and others will know from the conversations that I have with people who are still serving, that morale is not in a particularly good place. People don't feel valued for their service. And I think particularly, I've had lots of conversations with people who've looked at some of the senior political leadership. And I'm not talking about the Defence Secretary here. I think, to be fair to him, has done a good job during the crisis with Ukraine, but at the former Prime Minister. And I've just felt very badly let down that in the Army, the Air Force, the Royal Navy, you know, there are a set of standards that people adhere to. I think it's not unreasonable that people who serve expect politicians to meet those same standards. And I think it's pretty clear that they haven't. And it's pretty clear what people in the armed forces think about that. Thank you for that, Dan. But on standards, I have to say, it's an absolute pleasure to see when you stand up and debate with someone like Tom Tugendhat on the other side. And the way in which you engage with debate as two veterans of the armed forces is so refreshing to see. You know, there's yes, of course, you're going to have a bit of a ding dong every now and again. Um, but I have to say, just the, res the mutual respect based on those values and standards is so refreshing to see. And I think a good advert for politics. So thank you, Dan, from the way in which you do business is all I can say. Thank you. Um, Toby, perhaps a bit more generally speaking, we focused a little bit on Parliament, uh, but what is the Labour Party doing to engage more widely with the armed forces community? You know, you're co-chair of the Labour Friends of the Forces, but what are you actively doing at the moment? Uh, so uh, the party, the Channel Defence Team and uh, Labour Friends of the Forces have been, I think, uh, resetting the narrative within the party. There's been a conversation, a debate to do that first. 
uh, and then re-engaging with the forces community. So that's why you've heard uh, John Healy and David Lammy and Keir Starmer talking about Labour's unshakable commitment to NATO. That's been a conversation we've had to have internally, and we're now taking it out to the forces and to the wider public to remind people this has always been what we've been about, this is always who we are, these have always been our values. Uh, and I think as service personnel and veterans, uh, we're well-placed to support that. I joined the Labour Party in 1998 as a student in this city and joined the Air Force five years later. And I never found, personally, any professional conflict between my personal values as a citizen and a party member and my professional obligations in the armed forces. I think when we talk about those values, we see there's a huge alignment between what the party's doing uh, and where and where the people are. There's visits going ahead. So Keir Starmer and John Healy went out to Estonia to visit the... Uh, Royal Time Regiment out there uh, supporting the, uh, the NATO deterrence. Uh, there's been visits to uh, Northwood to visit uh, the Army Training Regiment to train the Ukrainian soldiers at the moment as well. So getting out there on the front foot and articulating those cases, those arguments, sorry, has been part of what they've been doing over the past six or eight months. It's really interesting you mentioned you actually joined the Labour Party and was in the Royal Air Force. I think there's a bit of a myth and a taboo about being members of political mm. parties whilst um, still uh, being in the armed forces. Yes, there are um, now King's regulations, I guess, uh, around what you can do in terms of actively campaigning, uh, but you can actually be a parliamentary candidate uh, whilst being in the armed forces. That is completely okay. And we need to get this out there what you can't do is actively campaign, knocking on doors, etc. But there are these are guidelines. So we do need to get the word out there. You can be a member of a political party and still serve in the armed forces because that, I think that's a huge barrier we need to lift. So the work you do with Labour Friends of the Forces is a key part of getting that message out there uh, to those that want to come and join your party. And Chris, um, we know that industry um, is all over and you work in industry for Salesforce all over the availability of talent and skills in order to solve business solutions. We're looking at solving political solutions here as well with what we do with Campaign Force. But what's your experience of how industry have responded to the challenge of tapping in to those talent and skills from the armed forces? So you mentioned the integrated review a moment ago and the world's a far more competitive place. Um, now that competition to some degree has never really gone away from industry. If you don't succeed, you sink very rapidly. And so there is a competition to bring in the best talent available to you. Now, post-COVID, post-Brexit, there are, you know, it, it, it is apparent that there are significant gaps in the workforce place. Um, and therefore, that competition is even greater. So you've got to go and find the best people you can possibly find. So industry recognises that the military brings some of that talent out there. It recognises that that work ethic, that competence um, and that passion to do well exists. And equally, that you can tailor that passion, that you can shift it around, you can focus it on the things you need to focus it on because you're coming with a whole set of skills that can mould it into the right way. So industry is really good at this. It has a whole range of service leave packages. Uh, it recognises that you're going to come across as... Uh, somebody with a set of skills, but they might need moulding in the right place. So it's going to bring across some training. It's going to bring across the opportunity to accelerate your career from where you started, and you know, from where you started leaving the armed forces with a particular set of skills, and bring you up to a speed, at least, if not uh, at least the same standard, if not ahead of those individuals who you would have been with uh, as peers uh, who have left directly from school, from university. Um, Banking consultancy both do this really, really well. Huge amounts of uh, huge amounts of levers, um, uh, lever schemes through the, through those routes. 
Um, I naturally have to mention Salesforce. We have Vetforce, uh, free training uh, for um, for service personnel and their spouses um, and partners, so that they can move around as well. So there's always uh, always routes in there. So. It really comes down to the fact that everyone recognises that there are only limited numbers of people that want jobs or are available for jobs, and there is an absolute competition to get the best talent. The military provides a lot of that, and so you've got to provide the right schemes and the right ends to bring that in. I'll be quite honest. I looked at programmes like Vetforce and others with Deloitte and Barclays and thought, well, they're, they're getting into the talent, the armed forces with a pipeline and a programme for, I'm going to nick that idea and do it in <laughs> politics, um, quite frankly. So keep doing what you're doing. But I just do think it will help with retention. If veterans get their good job with good, good organisations like Salesforce, then they've still got an itch to scratch, which is service goes back to our original question so if they can have a good job of good organization that values their military service and skills like salesforce there's another thing that needs addressing when they're at home where they're going to do in their spare time obviously apart from family as well or other pursuits and that's service i don't care if they do that running the local scouts the local rugby team or being in local government because i think that's a really good way in which you can exercise that itch to serve that no that doesn't leave you it's in your dna once you serve the armed forces um and gareth um it's in your dna of course and you left the royal navy as a senior officer now i am a non-commissioned senior non-commissioned officer in the reserve forces uh, and i have worked in senior levels of politics so i'm going to challenge something here for you um politics can be seen as a bit of an officer's sport um, uh, you know, not people like me uh, and uh, and perhaps Louise as well. That those of us that weren't commissioned, um, is this really true? Um, I mean, does rank matter if you're going to serve in public life? You'll get an answer straight, but I'm going to get there in a little diversion. Um, <laughs> of course, it doesn't matter. But no, you've used the word senior quite a lot, and of course, senior can be taken to mean a lot of things. Like you may have spent a bit too long in the armed forces, and uh, you may be a bit too old. <laughs> No, uh, the point actually has, seriously, the point has uh, bugged me quite a lot because I've been egged on. I'm sad to say I've been egged on within the Labour Party to play up my rank considerably um, to the point of campaigning under a banner of, you know, Commodore Gareth, for example. And uh, I I, I tell you now, I won't do it. I'm absolutely not doing it. I'm not going to campaign under that banner. Um, I did have a full career in the Royal Navy, 36 years, and I'm proud of it. And I was pretty good at it. And promotion was rewarding. But... I always believed the mantra that I was actually trained to believe in, the, and it's absolutely right anyway, that the, the sailor was always the single most important factor. And that no matter what level you're at or how much experience you, were, you had, you were always engaged in the process of building teams, supporting individuals and chasing after a difficult mission. And that is so relevant to politics that you can see why it's uh, highly relevant that we, we would like to have more veterans in politics. Um, you know, there are people at every rank uh, and every level of experience that have gone on to have fantastic civilian careers because they've got it in them, this DNA thing that you spoke about. And so we would like to see more of them in politics, without doubt. Every person that served and people outside too remember warrant officers, senior non-commissioned officers, you know, leading hands, private soldiers that have done amazing things, that have risen to the challenge that have been able to spot what's going wrong and have had the initiative to try and sort it out. So that those are the people we want in politics because there are too many crap people in politics to go back to what we said at the start. Um, um, so as you can see, I'm not a ranked person in regard to this, um, absolutely not. Um, uh, I'm going to touch the sport thing as well. Um, you know, you used to call it an officer sport. 
it, it, it is hugely, it's a very demanding thing to take on getting involved in politics, which is probably why servicemen are quite good at it sometimes. It is, it has adrenaline rushes, moments of excitement, a bit like sport, but it is not like sport in other respects. It is uh, far too, uh, far too uh, serious for that. And I would say anyone who wants to, th who <laughs> thinks about coming into politics as a sport, best stay out of it. Well, I guess at least you've got a referee in the speaker as well in, in politics, and that's a job I, I do not envy. Um, but we spoke, there are many facets to politics, of course. I And for those of you that are interested to know, in Parliament, there are 51 members of Parliament with a military background. Two-thirds of those are officers, so there lacks diversity there. We don't currently have... Um, a voice from the um, Commonwealth troops community, and that's um, many people on this table have done a lot of work behind the scenes or, or publicly, like Dan in Parliament, around looking after their rights in this country. Don't have a Gurkha voice as a member of Parliament. These are all people that we serve with, and they de they deserve a voice in this country. Um, so this is one of our modus operandi for, for being set up in the first place. And obviously, women. There are just three women that have armed forces experience. Only one has been in the regular army, um, and that's Sarah Afton, the new. Veterans Minister, um, but perhaps we won't go down that rabbit hole of talking about the Veterans Minister. Um, but on, on women in politics, it's something we really need to um, espouse. I'm really pleased to meet, finally meet Louise, uh, who's got an amazing experience in local government. I'd be really interested to hear both Louise's and Dan's take on that kind of challenge between Parliament and government and local government, and perhaps how you interacted between the two uh, from a local government perspective how do you find working with your mp and, and the parliamentarians and dan your experience as a perhaps constituency mp what it's like or from from using your skills perhaps from the military skill set of negotiation uh of working with local government too so louise what's it like being like for you um i definitely think uh, you know like i said earlier it sets you up for um you know you, you already have that in you for that for that life of service so you go into it already dedicated you when you're in the forces you have a commitment to your team it's ne it's never you know ju just you on your own so you have your commitment to your team so working alongside your other councillors the mp leaders in the community and going back to that sort of rank thing you know the, the machine doesn't work without all of the cogs so Leaders in the community have some of the same values that we have. Um, as a veteran myself, you know, some of the skills we have, communication skills, um, being able to sort of work within um, d different demographics, the, the loyalty and the, the, the professionalism that we have as well. Um, so for me, it's a really good connection with being able to work on all levels, through from local government, through with your MP, right down to, you know, your community leaders as well. And it's not about... Like you say, rank in the Air Force or, or the Armed Forces, you're trained to be a leader, whether that's, you know, within your own little section, within your, within your own group of friends. So we're all leaders in our own way. And I think having that ability to be able to work as part of a team and lead where you need to and sit back and listen where you can, it definitely sets you in good stead. No, bang on. And uh, Dan, what's it been like working with local government? Um, great councillors uh, like Louise as well in the past. What's it been like for you? Well, I'm just going to be a little bit cheeky if you'll um, indulge me. You did actually make, I think, a really astute point about it being an officer's sport. Uh, and I think that that is a good observation because all of us who spent time in the armed forces know that there are outstanding people who are not commissioned officers who frankly do much of the work and don't necessarily always uh, get much of the glory. Or podcasts. Or podcasts. Um, <laughs> That, that, that is a fair charge, I think. We need to think about what more we can 
do to enable those people who are not commission officers, who maybe don't necessarily have the same networks or access, to come into politics. But you could equally and rightly make that point about other professions as well. So that's not just a sort of charge to be leveled at the armed forces. More generally, you know, where where are the nurses coming forward? You know, where are the people who who um, are doing jobs that would mean they'd be in a really good position to contribute to important debates in Parliament? So that's a wider issue, but one we definitely need to to address. I think. I just want to make make this point that I think it, there's been some really interesting reflections about what's in the DNA of people who serve. And I think it's really important that in a conversation about veterans and in a conversation about people who transition from the armed forces into Civvy Street, we obviously need to look out and support those people who struggle to make that transition. Obviously, we need to do that. But we should also not lose sight of the fact that the overwhelming majority of people who've served go on to be incredibly successful at what they do. So I spend a lot of time banging the drum with employers to say that people who've served, they've got that can-do attitude, they get stuff done, they've got a kind of a great spirit about them, that they're, they're, they're really good members of the team and they work hard and they have a set of transferable skills, which I think is highly valuable to employers. So we need to champion those who've served and make sure employers, particularly those who perhaps don't have a connection to the armed forces, understand um, the value that they can add. But at the same time, uh, we do need to support those people who struggle to make the transition. I've been doing a bit of work recently for somebody who will be uh, familiar to, to many people in the room, and that's Ben Parkinson. Ben Parkinson is, is one of the most inspirational people I have ever met. You know, he's widely acknowledged to be the most seriously injured um, serviceman in, in recent time. Yet despite all of that, he maintains this extraordinary positive attitude and he is a force of nature. But it should shame our country and our society that he has had to beg, borrow and steal and rely on charity to get the support and the treatment that he deserves. It is entirely legitimate to have a debate about military conflicts and whether they're the right thing to do or whether they're the wrong things to do. But where I think and where I hope there is general agreement is if we send people off to do these things and if they're materially affected, whether that's physically or mentally as a consequence, as a country, we have a lifelong commitment to support those, even if that comes at some cost. Final point, because I know you want to uh, wrap things up. I think your your advice... Um, or the question was about the the advice. A few years ago, I remember being at a food bank and I was just talking to people at the food bank, not making a big deal about the fact that I was there. And I just sat down uh, talking to this bloke, and he was in a pretty bad way, and he was he was really struggling. And there was just something about him that indicated to me that at some point he'd served in the armed forces. So I didn't want to get into sort of asking him about it. So I just said to him, and it was a bit of a punt, "When did you leave the army?" And he sort of paused and he said, I, I left the army 20 years ago and I'm, I'm homeless now. I've been in prison. I've had all sorts of problems. And I said, look, you know, why have you not gone to the Royal British Legion? Why have you not asked for help? You know, as a veteran, there are lots of organisations and institutions who are there to support you because of your service to our country. And he said to me, and I'll, I'll always remember it, he said, I'm too proud. I'm too proud to ask for help. So we all know there are many veterans who've been affected by their service, who do suffer as a consequence. And I think that we have to make sure that we've got an environment where nobody feels that they're too proud to ask for help. No, great words said, Dan. Thank you. And for those of you who haven't looked up Ben Parkinson on social media, do. If you're having a rubbish day, um, 
go on see the positive dear ben as dan's described there and it will absolutely make your day he's an absolutely great example of our community and um dan mentioned employers there chris um, I mean, we, we bang on employers, a great example about transition of skills, but what more can employers do to help encourage their employees to perhaps take up another service pursuit, like joining the reserves or standing as counsellors? Can, can employers help um, support them stand as local government representatives, you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the first thing employers have to realise is it's good for them. And if they realise it's good for them, they're going to make people do it and they're going to help people to do it. Um, so someone who is challenged... Uh, someone who feels they are understood, uh, someone who feels they can contribute is going to add a lot more to your company than somebody who's just there to see in, you know, the kind of nine to five, the minimum thing. That's what you want from them. Not only that, but if they've got external pursuits, if they've got those other things, whether that is politics, whether that is reserve service, whatever it might be, that's adding a whole new factor and a whole new element to the way they see the world. And that diversity of thought is going to give you a competitive edge as well. Bang on. I'm so glad we recorded that because I want to play that to employers every time <laughs> I meet them. Um, and just a, a final question before we wrap up, um, and that is to Toby and Gareth. We can get um, a, a short, sharp answer. Uh, but directly, what is your direct, I was going to call it call to action, but call to arms. What is your call to arms for anyone thinking about entering into politics? So let's go for Toby first, please. I just say get stuck into it, and it's a cliche, but it's true. That's why it's a cliche. So in the forces, you get a new job, you're posted somewhere, you get pre-employment training or on-the-job training. And so we're reluctant sometimes in politics because there's no course you can go on to learn how to be a councillor or a candidate. It doesn't exist. Everybody else, frankly, is winging it as well. So join them and wing it. Don't worry about the vocabulary, the abbreviations, what's the NEC, what's the NPF, doesn't matter. You know, make contacts, make friends. There are plenty of people at LFF will mentor you as best we can. Um, talk about talent management, Chris. So the Labour Party ran its uh, future candidate programme this year, which completed in Mar- in May. 400 candidates on there, eight were LFF members. We helped them through uh, in the background as well. Um, so these these schemes exist. So get stuck in and meet people and just get on with it, basically. Yeah, everyone's winging it. There's a few actually in the audience I recognise that are winging it today. Um, <laughs> previous, previous guests of the show mentioned no names, um, Andy and Alex. Um, and, and Gareth, final word from you, call to action. Sure, well, I would say take a look around you and, and ask, make yourself an honest assessment of what you see around you. And actually, since Friday, I would ask another question being a little bit party political, do you, if you remotely think that you might be able to make a better fist of it than this lot, then perhaps come and get involved. And, uh, you know, remember back to your service career when there would have been times when you were disgruntled with the politicians that set you up for this. And so we need better politicians. Uh, get stuck in. Back to you. <laughs> and I say stop throwing cushions at the TV because it's annoying. You run out of cushions. Uh, and really the mantra is stand up and serve again. Panel, thank you so much for your insight. It's been absolutely amazing. And uh, we'll speak again soon. Thank you. Salesforce is actively pursuing, through its friends within the MOD and the Veterans Advisory and Pension Committees, to make veteran data obtainable in a compliant way to the Office of Veterans Affairs. This will have a significant impact in understanding the needs of the veteran community nationally, but also act as a conduit to better enable the VAPCs and local government to understand their veteran communities to help those most in need. Salesforce can bring this vision to light, allowing all veterans to stand up and serve again. And we're enormously grateful for their support in helping us produce this podcast.